All right. Now, it is my honor and privilege to introduce to you somebody that I have been blessed with and blessed with knowing since the young man was year seven. So I've seen him. One of the greatest testimonies that young people can have in high school, especially in a, in a public high school, where there are so many worldviews, there are so many ideologies, there are so many views that are promoted is the consistency of Christian character held throughout, the testimony of a godly man or a godly woman throughout high school. And, and whilst this person, I can say, had a consistency of character and a consistency of godliness throughout high school, he ended up being the, uh, the school captain in, in 2014, the year that he graduated. Um, he ended up uh, just being actively involved in having this, this great testimony. And whilst he hasn't changed in look, he has changed in height. So it is my blessing and my privilege to be able to introduce to you a friend who is not only a, a Christian brother, but an avid lover of rugby as well. So there's a, a special part there. So please make our brother feel welcome. welcome. Uh, Jonathan Barnett, please come on up, brother. So I would really encourage you to get to know Jono afterwards. I'm not going to talk too much about what he does now because he's going to share a little bit about that. But one, what's one of the things? Being a, we have people here who are parents of children going into high school. We have grandparents of children as well. What's one thing that you can share regarding a consistency of Christian character, a, a, a good testimony throughout your school life? What's one of those things that you could share? I, I didn't ask him this question beforehand. I just thrown at him now because he's, he's all right. He's got it. So what, what, what would you say, bro? If, yeah, what, what sort of advice could you give regarding being a, a Christian child in today's atmosphere mm. in school? I think one thing that was huge for my experience was uh, having time to be available and to be present and to uh, reflect on your purpose on being in that place that God's put you in, in high school at that time. Uh, I think I was... Uh, yeah, a bit different to a bunch of my peers because many of them were really busy. They had lots of things on outside of school uh, and they were you know, going to things maybe most evenings or every evening and uh, the fact that I had the ability to engage in a whole bunch of extra things in the school environment and build relationships with my peers through that because I had the time. I wasn't disappearing to a whole bunch of other commitments. Um, I think having the time to be present with whoever you're around is such a big witness to the, uh, the time and the care that God expresses for us. So. Nice. And you are from a Christian home? Yeah. So when did your Christian faith for you become real, become yours? Uh, I would say that I would, I would have called myself a Christian my whole life, but I would have started owning that for myself at around 15 or 16 when... As a fairly high-achieving student and quite a popular person at school, uh, I realised that there was an emptiness in pursuing those things for um, the purpose of my life. I, um, being in a, a school environment, realised that there's always someone cleverer than you and there's always someone who's that, that bit more than you, always someone who's that bit better. And if I'm trying to define myself and define my relationship with God by how good I can be and how impressive I am that I'm never going to quite measure up. So when I was, yeah, sort of 15 and from then on in my later teen years, um, began to realise that uh, 
God doesn't demand any particular performance from me, um, but that I get to just enjoy the goodness of participating in what God's already doing rather than striving to, to do something myself. Yeah. I have one less serious question. In high school, you only ever wore shorts. That's right. Yeah. At any stage, even in your senior, in your senior high school life, even as school captain, like everyone was in blazers and longs, but you always wore shorts. Why is that? Um, yeah, so part of it was I loved to cycle. So I rode my bike to school. Um, riding in shorts is much easier than riding in trousers. Um, but also I think maybe I'm just a fairly relaxed, informal kind of guy and don't take too many things too seriously. Um, yeah, it was just a bit of a thing. As you can see, I've, I've dressed up for you today. There's, yeah, yeah. There's thanks, no thanks for that. <laughs> I appreciate so. that. Well, you didn't yeah. ride your bike today, so I appreciate I that too. Today. Yeah. That's right. Okay. Um, wait, a couple of things that I really know. Jono, Jono, actually, he's one of those guys that could do everything. When he sat there and he said, well, you know, being relatively popular, and he actually really was. Like, it's not him going around, I'm Mr. Popular. He actually really was quite popular. He was, had a great testimony amongst everybody within the high school, which actually contributed to him being voted for school, being school captain. Um, but he could, he's one of those guys that can play, like, any sport. Like, he's a good basketballer. Often he would feed me if I'd be in the key. You know, he could pass, he can dribble, he can shoot. He can play touch footy. He's a fat, mad rugby player. Uh, um, do you play chess? Oh, I did in primary school sometime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he's one of those guys that can, He's basically the epitome of the person that I did not like growing up. Uh, <laughs> but as now that I'm an old man, I really appreciated him and I appreciated his input because he was greatly encouraging to me in my role as a scripture teacher and a chaplain at the high school. And he was a really great encouragement to me as well during that time. So, uh, and not only speaking rugby, but also speaking spiritual things. So I'm very thankful for him. Well, brother, can I pray for you? And we'll hand things over and you can share with us what God's been doing, where you're going from now, and, and, and the message that he's laid upon your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for my brother Jonathan. I pray that you will bless him, you'll anoint him, and I thank you for the things that you've been teaching him about yourself. May you use him now as your mouthpiece to share with us the work that you are doing in the world today and the part that he gets to play in it. So please, Father, in your goodness and your grace, by your spirit, anoint him for your glory and in your name. Amen. Make our brother feel welcome. Amen. Thanks. Well, thanks, everyone. It's such a joy to be here and a, a pleasure to have um, unexpectedly bumped back into Joe at an event recently when he invited me along to be here. Um, I'm always just so encouraged as someone who has lived in this area my whole life essentially. I grew up in Seven Hills, went to school in Borkham Hills, um, you know, used to play basketball down the road here and I played cricket in, all over this area and um, to despite having been in this location for so long, I can still come along on a Sunday to a new place and that meet all these new followers of Jesus that I never knew existed. Um, so that just makes me excited and encouraged about you know, just how big um, what God is up to in the world is. So thanks for welcoming us. You've been very kind and really um, enjoying getting to know you a bit this morning. So let's see if I can get this working. Are we on? Trying to get up this slide of horizons if I can. I don't know if you can help me there, Joyce. Anyway, I'll start. Um, part of what I'm here to do is to, oh yeah, here we go, um, say a bit about a local expression of faith in Jesus and love for our community. 
one that I happen to be involved with as a lawyer. So um, Horizons Family Law Centre, who you can see up on the screen, we are a small charitable expression of faith in Jesus where we provide free and low-cost legal help to people who don't have any other access to a lawyer and are going through family violence or family breakdown or a high-conflict parenting dispute post-separation in a family. Two types of situation that that might come from are, for example, if there's been a separation and one parent has some safety concerns about the other parent and they want to call us to get some advice about how to manage the safety risk. Or, on, on the contrary, it might be a parent who is calling us because they feel the amount of time the children are spending with them is not in their children's best interests and perhaps it's best for their children to spend some more time with them. So they might call us for advice about how to try and arrange that. So we say our work is about uh, helping families in crisis remake themselves as much as our clients might like it and as much as we as the lawyers would love to have a lawyer's magic wand where we can just uh, magic the problem away, we don't have that and what we need to be doing, our role is helping the families come up with creative and practical solutions for their problems. Um, and so that's, that's our goal is to help people solve their problems with our advice. We do that through giving advice over the phone. We give about a thousand hours of legal advice over the phone every year and through attending mediations with people. We run some court cases where we're doing representation on behalf of our client. And the really, um, the, the part that I love especially is this um, missional front of house um, model where we have four clinics around Sydney. So you can see on the right hand side there, that's our poster for the Blacktown Clinic. You don't need to be able to read it, but just to get an idea of what we're doing. Um, we have a clinic in Blacktown each fortnight and we also have three other clinics, one in Thornley, so not too far from here too, and another in the Northern Beaches and in the South Sydney area. And through those clinics, we meet about 150 or 200 clients face-to-face -face every year. And not only do they meet us for some, something practically helpful, uh, an expression of compassion to them, they, through that clinic, will meet a volunteer from a local church who provides a welcoming place for them to come in offers tea and coffee and conversation and if um, appropriate and if it seems right for the moment prayer for clients who have come into that building for legal advice and met some Christians who they might never have met if it wasn't for the legal advice they needed. So what we say is through that model we are just putting God's love on display for people to come and witness and seeing where Jesus takes it. Our hope is that through meeting hopefully a kind and compassionate lawyer and a kind and compassionate volunteer from a local church, that person might realise, oh, there's something about these people and might go, oh, well, here's this you know, kids group that's on in the holidays. My, I might bring my kids to that. And if they bring their kids to that group, then they'll interact with more kind and compassionate people who are leading and organising that group. And just by virtue of having so much interaction with people that just seem like they've got something some presence of love and kindness about them that by putting God's love on display, these clients might just be attracted to the goodness of what they are witnessing in front of them. So I suppose it's a, a in a sense, it's a bit of come for the legal advice and stay for the loving community. One example from my practice in the last 12 months has been someone um, in the Blacktown area who 
as you can imagine, through separation, lost a bunch of his community. So when a family separates, there's no guarantee that the relationship and support networks split 50-50 evenly between the parents. So for him, he'd felt that um, he'd lost a lot of his community and his support network. Through coming to get legal advice from me at the clinic, he got to meet our volunteer and he's now attending one of the local churches that uh, helps put our clinic on and hosts our clinic and has been able to re-establish a bunch of his, uh, a new support network and a new community that will support him and his children. We are funded just by the kind and gracious donations of churches and churchgoers. And so when people come to us and they ask, uh, what am I paying you for this? Because they're expecting they'll be paying for, for their lawyer. And we get to say, oh, actually, it's nothing. You don't have to pay. They're confused by that. And they'll ask us, how, how is it that this is free? And we get to say, well, it's because we have churches and people who go to those churches who care about you and care about people in your situation. And so it's free because they fund us and they host us to be able to do this for you. We do all of that explicitly in the name of Jesus. We've got um, a quote from the Psalms saying that God upholds the, uh, the, port, the cause of the needy and uh, brings justice for the poor on our signage and on our website and our emails. And so that goes out to everyone we meet. So um, we're not just talking clients there, we're talking mediators, other lawyers, judges, court officials, what we're trying to do is display the goodness of God's generosity and kindness to everyone that we encounter. Obviously, clients is a big focus, but they're not the only focus. So we, we work with like-minded organisations, whether they are yeah, Christian churches who host us and um, provide the face-to-face opportunity with clients, but also with, we say, unintentional collaborators in the kingdom of heaven. Other services that might be secular and government-funded services that are providing another practically helpful thing to our clients and we partner with them because we want whatever is best for our clients even if the people who are offering the other services may not realise yet that there's a little bit of kingdom of heaven in what they're doing too. So if you're interested in finding out any more, um, there's some materials I've brought in. They're down on the table at the back so feel free to have a look at those. There are some brochures so if anyone that you know might benefit from our service, you can grab one of these and um, let someone know about it. There are some uh, donation forms if you feel moved to contribute to us being able to say to people, well, the reason this is free is because we have churches and church members who care for you. Uh, the, The donation forms have some envelopes that go with them and the envelopes say something like, put them in the box that says donate. There is no box that says donate. Just bring them and I'll, I'll take them back to the office tomorrow. Um, we have these uh, ministry updates called Just Grace and they go out every three months. So they go um, into a whole bunch of people's email inboxes. And if you'd like to receive those to hear about how, um, what's happening in our work, here's some reflections on um, biblical stories and passages and how that relates to our work and here's some stories for our clients and what's happening in their lives, then feel free to just write your email on one of the donation forms and give that to me too. Um, or just come up and I can write your email address down. Uh, If you would like to, you could also donate online. The website information is on here too. Um, We're pretty easy to find if you just search for Horizons Family Law Centre. So that's about all I have to say for Horizons. Um, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share about it and really grateful for my own discipleship journey to be able to do this. I, I wasn't expecting as a junior lawyer to be able to have my 
my professional skills and my faith work so closely together because it's quite unique to have that. So I'm just really glad to be able to share that with all of you. So thanks for lending me your ears on that. Feel free to ask me more questions afterwards if you would like to. So what we're going to do now is we're going to hop into a bit of a discussion about an interesting passage on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Now, when I've mentioned that to some friends, I was doing that um, on Friday night. They were like, oh, that's a tricky one. Um, So you might be curious as to why I picked that. Um, And I thought I'd give a little intro as to my personal interest and the timing of that passage at this particular time of year. So the context is that over the last probably 12 to 18 months, my wife Sarita and I have been taking a real interest in the church calendar. Now, you may not be familiar with the church calendar, but Christmas and Easter are, of course, uh, huge events within the church calendar. There's just also a whole lot more to it as well. What it is, is it's a collection of um, church history and church wisdom over the centuries that helps us focus at particular times of year on certain things in the Christian story, especially in the life of Jesus. So one helpful way that, one helpful thing I've um, thought about it is that We have these great themes throughout the year of waiting for Jesus to come, not only the first time, but also currently as we wait for his second coming, Uh, celebrating his arrival, marking his journey to the cross, celebrating his, um, his rise from the dead and the birth of the church, all of these fantastic themes, but it's really hard to try and um, think about all of that all the time. And what the church calendar does is it helps us break that down into the times of year when Jesus is doing those things and then we can meditate on those themes at that time. Connected with this is a bunch of um, symbolic and practical things that you can do that uh, helps tie you into this great church history which of course began with the life of Jesus. An example of what we're doing at the moment is We are currently in the season after Christmas, which has the the 12 days of Christmas being the Christmas season, and that ends on the 6th of January with Epiphany. Epiphany is the day where you celebrate the coming of the wise men from the East to worship Jesus. So at our front door at the moment, every time we walk out the door, we have a star up next to the door, and we see that star every time we leave, and that's a reminder that just like the wise men who gave up their home for a time and put whatever it is they needed to on the table to follow God, um, so too, when we see that star, we should be willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads us, no matter what it is that we have to give up along the way. So the reason I've picked this passage to talk about today is that as the 40 days that Jesus prays and fasts for in the wilderness, we have this opportunity soon to imitate Jesus' life in the season of Lent. So you may have heard of Lent. Lent is a 40-day season in the lead-up to Easter, and it begins in February. I'll talk more about that soon. And the period of 40 days of praying and fasting in Lent is inspired by and imitating Jesus' 40 days praying and fasting in the wilderness. So we're going to dive into that um, more in a moment. But before I go too much further into the story, I thought it might just be good to pray. So will you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we're so grateful for your presence with us now, your presence with us before we came, your presence with us as we sing and as we fellowship and as we speak and listen, and your, fellowship, and, and your presence with us as we go back after this into our, the rest of our Sunday and into our week. 
just as you led Jesus into the wilderness and then led Jesus into his ministry, we ask that you would be leading us wherever it is that you call us in each moment, whether that is a comfortable moment or a less comfortable moment. And lead us to where you would seek us to meet our neighbours and to share Jesus with them. Amen. Okay, can we get the slides up? Yep, okay. So um, I've got some pictures up along the way which are some different artistic depictions of this story if you would like to have a look at those as we go. So the context for Jesus here is that he's just come from the baptism. So Jesus has had this fantastic spiritual, literally spiritual experience where the Holy Spirit has come upon him, where the Father has said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He has just had this fantastic spiritual high. He's just been commissioned and affirmed by the Father as his chosen one. The first thing that I find so interesting about this passage, in contrast to what I would think to do in that moment of the spiritual high, is that it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, I imagine 16-year-old me after a church camp after a youth camp, being on that spiritual high and thinking, I am going to get out there. I'm going to hit the streets. This is time to get my hands dirty. I'm going to um, share the good news. I'm going to feed the hungry. I'm going to you know, bring justice to the poor. I'm going to do things. I'm going to say things. I'm going to start doing stuff. But we should note here that Jesus hasn't actually started his ministry. He's just had that amazing spiritual high, but the Spirit leads him to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I wonder what our lives would be like if we spent uh, time in testing uh, our ideas after we have such a, a great moment of spiritual fervor and enthusiasm. But Jesus submits to the authority of the Spirit, who doesn't do the temptation, but brings him into the place where the devil decides to tempt Jesus. So, I would say I'd like to talk about the next few words as well which are interesting easy to pass over but Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights and in a great understatement it says he was hungry uh, you, you might say uh, so after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights just like Israel before him in for 40 years and just like Elijah and Moses in the Old Testament before him Jesus is entering this great tradition of spending 40 days fasting in the wilderness After that, and we'll come to in a moment, Satan meets him and decides to tempt him. My assumption here is that Satan is thinking, aha, I've got him. He's just spent 40 days fasting. This man is hungry. He is going to cave because I can just, first up, I'll just offer him bread. Easy. He's going to be hungry and I've, you know, he's uh, a lamb to the slaughter here. But I wonder if actually the point of the Spirit leading Jesus into the wilderness is not that after 40 days he's tired and he's, he's weary and weak, but actually after the 40 days he is strong because Jesus has just spent 40 days training, practicing at saying no to something so that when the devil comes and offers him some immediate gratification of something, he's had a lot of practice. He's got 40 days of practicing saying no and this is actually when Jesus is at his strongest. And this is a theme that I'll return to when we talk about Lent because I think this might be a practice 
maybe not fasting for 40 days straight, but some form of fasting that can help make us stronger and imitate Jesus' uh, character as well. So after fasting for 40 days, Jesus is offered an immediate path right here and right now, immediate gratification to three things. First, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy there. So Satan thinking, here's this hungry man, he's fasted for 40 days, he'll be desperate for food, offers him food, thinking it'll be an easy win. But Jesus has actually spent 40 days saying no to that specific thing. So he's actually really good at saying no to the devil here. Next up, we have the devil taking Jesus to the holy city and setting him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, Jesus answers him by quoting Deuteronomy. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What's interesting here is that having heard Jesus respond to him with scripture to temptation number one, the devil thought, oh, look, I can play that game too, mate. Here's some scripture for you. And he throws him some, a quote from the Psalms. Um, and so that quote there about the angels looking after Jesus is actually a direct quote from scripture. Another interesting thing to note is this, the intro where he says, if you are the son of God, that's not a lie either. Literally, the previous story in the, in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus being told by the Father, you are my son. So nothing the devil said here is actually is technically wrong. So what, what's going on? Why does Jesus still say no? Well, I think the uh, important, message, uh, important message for us here is to think through what is authoritative use of Scripture. Because what the devil's done here is taken a piece of Scripture totally out of its context. And I, w- I don't have time to go into the context, but that Scripture is not one that matches Jesus' situation. What does match his situation is the story of Deuteronomy, which is where Jesus quotes again. And that's because in Deuteronomy, the nation of Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years of temptation before they can enter the promised land. Jesus here is in the wilderness for his 40 days of temptation. And so the story of Deuteronomy is the authoritative scripture that matches, that the context suits Jesus' situation. I think the fact that the devil here is very cleverly pulled out as a piece of scripture that on the face of it seems true. Maybe Jesus should just jump off the temple. The, the, the psalm says so, that the angels will look after him. But that's actually, I think it's a false reading and it's, it should make us suspicious of pulling texts from the Bible out of their context and just saying that you're going to rely on the plain meaning or the obvious meaning or the literal meaning of that text. I think we need to be really careful to figure out when people say, here's a quote of scripture, obviously the plain meaning of it is that you should do this thing, we should start having alarm bells ringing and thinking, is that something I need to be suspicious of? And like Jesus did here, thinking about how to respond by going to, by asking the question, what is the authoritative scripture 
for my circumstance. Maybe it is what the person is saying is the plain reading of that text, but maybe it's not, because it's certainly not here. My argument would be that the authoritative text and the authoritative stories for us to go to, if someone is quoting something out of context and saying, this is the plain and obvious meaning of what we should do, the place we should go is the life and the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is our authority. Jesus is the fullest revelation of who God is. Jesus is God's complete uh, representation on earth. He is the best authoritative source for our decision making. If someone has quoted something and we're not sure, test it against Jesus. Maybe they're right. It might line up with what Jesus does. But if someone's trying to lead us astray, then we should think, does this line up with the character of Jesus? I also noticed when I was preparing for today that the words, if you are the son of God, in this temptation and the first one, aren't actually really necessary for the temptation. The idea of throwing himself down off the temple or turning the stones into bread and eating them, those ideas that Satan gave Jesus, he could have just said them as they were, but he doesn't. He specifically adds the words, if you are the son of God. And that made me wonder, why does he choose to add those words? They're not strictly necessary. I think what's happening here is the tempter is trying to trick Jesus by getting him to think of an automatic consequence from his identity. Jesus has just been given this identity of son of God and maybe he hasn't fully thought through what that means yet and Satan is trying to dictate to Jesus the consequences of his new identity. He says, if you are this thing, the son of God, then you should do this thing. Turn the stones into bread, jump off the temple. And I think that's an important temptation for us to reflect on because as humans, there's something about our species that likes labels. We like identities. We like being able to think, I am this thing and they are that thing. And me being this identity or this group means I am like this and this other person is part of that other group and that means they are like that. They are something different. They do something different to me because I'm this other kind and I do this thing. I worry that if we follow this formula of if you are, insert identity here, then you should, insert behavior here, is on shaky ground. Um, that's, that's a risky form of logic of automatic cause and effect, of mandated consequence from your identity. An example that you might think of is, if you're smart, you should be a doctor or a lawyer. Maybe. I happen to be a lawyer. But um, maybe I'm not smart. That's, that's also another thing. But um, if you are smart, maybe you'll be a nurse. Maybe you'll be a teacher. Um, maybe you'll do unpaid voluntary work. There's nothing saying that if you are smart, you should be doctor or lawyer. I think... As Christians, we should be really wary of that logic because I think we hear a lot of things saying, if we are Christian, then you should or then you have to do certain things. One example would be, if you are Christian, you must read your Bible and pray every day. Now, before I go any further, yes, those, those are good things to do. That is a great ambition and I seek to do it myself. But to say that if you're a Christian, you have to read your Bible and pray every day. I mean, for, for one, not everyone can read. So how is that possible? Um, and secondly, um, that's just 
that implies that if someone fails to read their Bible or pray every day, then, that, then they're not a Christian. And it makes it sound like to be a Christian is to do a certain performance and a certain thing you have to do to earn God's favor to be in his good books as a Christian. Other things might be to be a Christian, then you should speak in tongues. Or to be a Christian, you should not drink or you should not smoke or you should not party or you should not hang out with the wrong kind of person. One thing that I think is particularly um, problematic in our culture that gets spoken about a lot is if you are a Christian, you should vote for this political party or you should not vote for that political party or at a referendum or something of the like. If you are a Christian, you must vote yes or you must vote no and people who don't are clearly not Christian. Now I emphasize again, reading the Bible and praying every day and thinking intentionally and carefully about what vote is good for the world is a good thing to do and we should aim for them. But to mandate a specific and automatic consequence from our identity as Christian is very risky ground to be on because that's what Satan does here to Jesus. He tries to dictate to Jesus the consequences of his identity as son of God. Now we turn to the third temptation. The devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus then says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. So here, Jesus is offered immediate gratification of power and ambition and government over the whole world. He's been offered previously immediate gratification of his physical needs, immediate image and recognition and almost like PR from jumping off the temple. And here he's offered immediate power and authority over the world, which is interesting again to think about because were we not just seeing a moment ago reign over all the earth? We want Jesus to reign over all the earth, don't we? None of these things in these temptations that he's been offered are themselves bad things. Jesus being fed, Jesus being known and recognized by many, and Jesus having authority over the world are all good things that you and I would agree are things we want to see. But the message of this story is there is a right way of achieving them and the way of immediate gratification of grabbing power, of trying to clutch for things as soon as possible here and now is the wrong way of doing it. At this point when I was preparing for today, my, my temptation was to go straight into what does that mean for us? What does it mean for me? What do we do about it? And thankfully there are people who are cleverer than me who write things about stories like this and I was reading something that they were, that they'd written and they said that before we jump to there, what we should do is reflect on what this means, of course, for Jesus, because the story is primarily about what God's up to here. And the main thing that we should contemplate from this story is what it means to be the Messiah. This story is setting up a particular image of what the messianic role is, what it is to be the Messiah for um, the Jewish people and for all people. Matthew um, is writing this gospel to a primarily Jewish audience. And the Jewish people had a certain image of what the Messiah was going to be. They had this expectation that the Messiah would restore Israel to its glory days, of the days of David and Solomon when they had a big empire and they were powerful and they had the big armies. 
the Messiah was going to become the new political and military power, and he was going to boot out the Romans who were at that time oppressing and occupying Israel. We see, though, in Revelation chapter 5 that Jesus as the Messiah is more like a lamb who has been slain than a lion who, who grabs power. This passage is primarily proof of what God is like. God as Messiah is not someone who kicks the Romans out and becomes the new top dog instead of the Romans, because that's what many Jews thought was going to happen at the time. This Messiah is going to become the new top dog. Jesus undermines the concept of top dog altogether. He says that power is not to be lorded over people, but power is to be given away. Power is to be used for the good of others in humble service. And we see that throughout the rest of his life, especially in offering up his life itself. So, noting that primary purpose of teaching us what God is like, not a violent, vindictive, powerful God who wants to lord it over people, but a submissive and servant-hearted God, we can turn to the parallel purpose of what does it mean for us and, and what are we to do about this. Of course, the New Testament is full of encouragements for us to be like Christ, to be in Christ, to be Christ's body. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So I would say that our primary purpose is to be like Jesus and become more like Jesus. And that's why I want to talk about Lent and about our ability to fast from something in Lent to imitate what Jesus is doing here. Um, which might help us imitate Jesus' character and learn to be more like him. So, this 40-day period of Lent, it begins on Ash Wednesday, which is the 22nd of February, so that's about three weeks away. Um, I think that's a good amount of time to have in the lead-up if you would like to join us in practicing Lent, because um, it gives you a bit of time to think and prepare rather than waking up the day before or the morning of and thinking, oh, what, what am I going to give up for Lent? And Lent is, it is about giving up, but I'm going to talk about it's more than giving up along the lines of what I mentioned before of Jesus actually becoming stronger. He's not just giving something up, but he's becoming something more. It's also really important to note before we talk about things like Lent and fasting that this is not a law and this is not an obligation. This is opportunity, it's not obligation. This is an invitation to join part of Jesus' story. This is not a law that we must do to please God or earn God's favour in a way that is uh, turning the world upside down in Jesus' time. Jesus and the New Testament writers reinterpret the law to be something that serves us, not something that we serve. This is not something that we have to do and there is no obligation. So, my invitation today is if you would like to consider practicing Lent, but it's not something that you have to do. This is for our benefit, and it's an opportunity. It's not an obligation. So, by fasting from food or something else during Lent, we create an emptiness. We create space to listen to God and to become something new, to become more like Christ. Which is especially important in a culture like ours, like this, where we're just so rushed and we have such little space. Lent and fasting from something creates that space because when we are giving something up, we will inevitably become hungry for that thing. 
whether it's food or social media or whatever it happens to be that you decide to give up for that time, there will be moments and, and these are not moments that we should be afraid of or be worried about in Lent. This is the whole point. There will be moments when you miss the thing that you're giving up. That is the whole purpose. There are three things I would encourage us to think about when we have that moment, which I stress is the entire point. It's not something to worry about and to think, oh, I'm hungry now, that's a bad thing. Being hungry and noticing your hunger is the very purpose of it. The first thing is to pray. When you're hungry you for food or for whatever else it is that you're giving up, you are reminded that I'm doing this for a reason. And you, you pray to God to say, God, make me more like you. I want to be joining your story. You might pray for a cause that is on your heart. It might be a conflict. It might be a natural disaster. It might be something more personal like someone in your life who needs prayer or someone that you know of who you've been asked to pray for. When you become hungry or you miss the thing you're giving up, we want to be, we take that as a reminder that we are going to pray now and we're going to um, choose instead of uh, going to get immediate gratification like Satan offered Jesus, immediate gratification of the thing that we're missing, we're going to take the moment to pray and to be formed in Christ. The second thing I like to think about when noticing that feeling of hunger for whatever we're fasting from is solidarity with the hungry and a simple reminder of just how rubbish it is to be hungry. In that moment, I've never been in an experience where I've been um, hungry because it's been forced on me. I have my entire life always had food available to feed me. But there are, of course, many people in our world, including very close to home here in Australia, many who can't afford food or who are choosing that they have to... uh, you know, pay rent or medications before they can get food and so they're skipping meals. Fasting reminds us that hunger sucks and we should do whatever we can to end it. Both in terms of feeding people who are hungry, but it's not that we lack food in the world. There's enough food for everyone. It's just that the food is not in the places it needs to be for the people who need it. It's, it's not accessible to everyone because not everyone has the money to afford it. There's plenty of food. It's just distributed incorrectly. So not only do we pray and remind ourselves that hunger sucks and we should try and end it, not just by feeding the hungry, but by changing the systems that we've set up in our world that produce hunger as a thing. Another part of the Lent practice, which again is opportunity, not obligation, is invitation if you would like it, is if you are saying no in Lent to um, something that you would ordinarily have to pay for, like food or coffee or chocolate or something, then you might put aside the money that you would have spent on that thing and at the end of Lent, you can donate that somewhere to a place that will reduce hunger for other people. So that's number two. Um, Hunger is terrible and we should end it. Number one, just a reminder to pray for whatever it is we're praying for. I should mention another biblical example of what we might pray for when we've noticed the hunger is uh, decision-making or um, where a path, which path to take. We see this in the New Testament for sure of people fasting for wisdom to decide what is the next step and what is the next decision. So those are the first two. The third one I think is actually the most important and that I think is a huge part of the story we've just heard about from Matthew. The third one is that by saying no to something for a time, by voluntarily giving up something that is not necessarily bad in and of itself, 
Of course, food is a great thing, part of God's good creation of us as physical beings to eat good food. But we say no to it for a time so that when our urges, when the hunger for something less good arises in us, we have practice at saying no to it. Jesus fasted in the wilderness from food, but Satan offered him not only food, but also recognition and fame and power. And Jesus, having fasted from one of those things, helped him practice to say no when he was offered more harmful things. Food wasn't bad for Jesus, but immediate uh, fame and uh, to be well-known and immediate power were bad, and practicing to say no to one thing helped him say no to the others. Our culture being one of immediate gratification, as we can see in this picture, um, we, we have this incredible, unprecedented, historically, level of comfort and speed of comfort. It's instant. We, we have it now. Um, we can get takeaway. We can get fast food. We can get delivery if we don't already have overflowing fridges and cupboards. So practicing to say no is especially important in our moment in history because we are so used to just saying yes to everything, to any need. Um, in our culture, negative emotional or physical experiences are to be avoided at all costs and to be gotten rid of as quickly as possible. So in that context, we need to remember that we have the ability to say no and that saying no might actually form us for something better. So not only do we say no, it's not just a purely negative experience, fasting or giving something up. We are choosing to say yes to something better. We're creating space for God to bring something new into the world and bring something new into our lives. And we don't see that directly in this story in Jesus because he goes on and he does other things and that shows us what he says yes to. So following this story in Matthew, what does Jesus say yes to? Well, he immediately after begins preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He begins calling disciples. He begins healing the sick. He goes and he preaches this incredible sermon on the mount of practical and ethical wisdom on how to live the good life and how to relate to God. And he turns the world the right way up through this amazing sermon about our physical and our spiritual needs and how there's no separation of those things, how our whole selves, there is, there is good news for our whole lives here and now and for the future. There is hope. That's what Jesus says yes to in Matthew. In Luke, he goes on and he gets up in his hometown and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he says, I am here to bring good news to the poor, to preach freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, um, to bring freedom to the oppressed and to bring the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus, having said no and practiced saying no in the wilderness for 40 days, enables him to go and say yes to this incredible program and ministry where God is reconciling everything in the world back to himself through the person of Jesus. So in practicing giving up in Lent, what might we say yes to? Well, of course, we can say yes to all of those things that Jesus says yes to and how we can join in with God's work in reconciling all things to himself, in bringing good news in the here and now and hope for the future. One good example of saying yes to something better, um, which it seems like many of you in the room would be familiar with, is parenting. In, in parenting, and I can't claim to be on any authority on this, but uh, you have chosen to say no to the ability to progress your career further or earn more money. You've certainly chosen to say no to a whole lot more nice sleep 
and you instead have chosen to say yes to raising these beautiful little images of God so that they can enjoy the fullness of life. That's something we see in our workplace a lot at Horizons as well, as you can imagine. In separated families, when someone calls us and is someone who has practiced saying no to the wrong things in their life so that they can say yes to the best interests of their children, that just comes through in in the, the character of that person and the advice we end up giving them so clearly compared to someone who is still trapped in saying no to whatever um, and getting immediate gratification for whatever they want to say no to. For example, saying no to their ex-partner. If their ex-partner has done something to them, they think tit for tat, I'm going to say no to you now because that's how the world works. Parents who have um, post-separation practiced saying no to things that are good for themselves for a time so that they can say yes to something better which is the best interest of their children and lower levels of conflict in their family will benefit them and it benefits their kids and it benefits their ex-partners too. It's so clear in Horizon's work when people know when to say no, even if it comes at some personal cost and when they're able to say yes to something better instead. So fasting therefore it reminds us to pray when we feel the hunger or we, we, we miss the thing we're, we're giving up. We're reminded to pray. We are reminded how terrible hunger is and how we should end it. And I think most importantly, we are reminded that we are saying no here to this thing for a time so that we can say no to more harmful things if they arise, like greed, anger, pride, violence. And not only so that we have practice saying no to the bad things, but so that we can say yes to the good thing, the amazing thing that God's up to in the world, of giving up of ourselves to be part of this grand picture of God bringing new life and new creation, bursting right within the old one. So some ideas of what we might fast from. I've alluded to some already, um, but there are some up on the screen. You can see alcohol, um, treat foods, Coke, coffee, chocolate. I think it might be actually brownies up there, um, if that's your thing. The ideas that I thought, there's, there can be any number of things here, but some ideas might be social media, it might be television, uh, chocolate or all sweet food, alcohol or coffee or all non-water drinks altogether. You might give up meat. You might give up your car. You might give up hurry and rushing by choosing at that moment when you get the red light or when you just miss the bus that I'm not going to get frustrated right now. I'm fasting from hurry and instead I'm choosing to be grateful in that moment. And when you're sitting at that red light or you're waiting for the next bus, you look around you and you, you thank God for the good things in your life and you thank God for the images of God around you at that place where you are. Or if it's healthy for you, and I have to give that um, condition because it's not healthy for everyone to fast from food, but you might choose to do some fasting from food for a day a week or two days per week or whatever it might be. Not because those things are bad, although hurry maybe is, um, not because being able to use the social media or watch TV or enjoy chocolate or anything, not because those things are bad, but because we need to relearn their goodness. In our world of immediate gratification, we have forgotten how good chocolate is. I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with your parents or your grandparents when they first, you know, had that taste of chocolate and how, you know, you know, our grandparents experienced the Second World War and they talk about 
um, you know, just how precious that moment was. And it's become so normalized in our society, we've forgotten just how good those things actually are. By giving them up for a time, we relearn their goodness and it enables us to do those things I mentioned before, pray, reminded to end hunger, and to say no to more harmful things, to say yes to something better. Last year, I fasted from treat foods, so sweet stuff and chips, the like. Um, and so that was an example of a special thing, a, a non-everyday item, not a routine part of my life, but that when I reached for that treat because I wanted, oh, geez, it'd be good to have some ice cream, I said, no, that's, that's not what I'm doing. I'm choosing to say no so that I can do these other better things. My wife, Sarita, who also as a pastor's daughter loves being used as a sermon illustration, um, she last year gave up tea. Now, if you have a conversation with Sarita, you'll learn pretty quickly how important tea is to her life. She wakes up with a cup of tea. If she is happy, she'll enjoy that moment with a cup of tea. And if she is sad or if she's down, she'll console herself with a cup of tea. Tea is, tea is pervasive. Um, but she chose to give that up, and that's an example of a, a very everyday thing as opposed to the special thing that I was giving up. That's a, a, a normal thing that is so part of her life that during Lent last year, she was constantly coming up with the urge, I would love to have a cup of tea right now. When she's getting out of bed, when she throughout the day as she's studying, because she was studying a lot last year, um, you know, gets up from her desk and reaches for the kettle and then goes, oh, no, I can't do that. Those were those common moments throughout her day when she felt the urge and she felt that hunger. And what did she do? She reminded herself, this is when I pray for what I'm praying for. This is when I pray and act for the end of hunger. And this is when I pray that God will help me say no to more harmful urges than the urge for tea and say yes to something better. And from the little bit of money, it's never going to be a lot, but the little bit of money that we saved from that, we gave that to a charity that might work to end hunger for other people who don't choose hunger for a time. Interestingly, I don't know if you've ever counted the days between the beginning of Lent and the end of it at Easter Sunday, but it's actually 46 days. You might wonder where the extra six come from. If we're imitating Jesus' 40-day fast, that math doesn't line up. And the answer is because Sundays don't count. Sundays are feast days, and we might wonder, well, why don't Sundays count? That's because Sundays are a reminder of what is coming. Lent is not completely a season dominated by giving up and by, you know, sadness at the thing we're not having. But on Sundays, we get to have that practice of having the cup of tea, having the piece of chocolate and going, geez, how good actually is this? And, and just remembering again the value of that thing. Sundays not only help us relearn that value, but they remind us of what's coming. They remind us of God's victory at the end of this season of Easter when death is defeated and new life bursts within the old and God's victory is won. So I suppose that's my invitation to you this season, uh, 22nd of February coming up, inspired by Jesus' time in the wilderness and his temptation from Satan. Um, will you join me? Will you join us as we um, give up something for Lent? Uh, not because those things are bad things, but to practice saying no to the wrong thing and saying yes to the good thing that God's doing in the world. To remind ourselves that the work of God, in fact, on Good Friday, it is finished. 
and on Easter Sunday that he is risen. Lent is one way that we might imitate Christ in the wilderness and that we might be reminded of that grand story that we're a part of. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the good example that you have given us, that we have recorded in the gospel stories. Help us to each and every day submit to your way of new life, of reconciliation, of good news for the world here and now and for the future. Thank you that even in our culture of immediate gratification, we have your example of something that's better for us and help us to live into that as a strange and beautiful witness to the world as they look at that practice and they go, geez, why is it that that person's not drinking coffee at the moment? And we get to share something good about what you've done in the world and why we choose to follow you. Help us to do that well for the rest of today and into the week to come. Amen.